Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On today's show, it is part three of four of the Nerdy V10 special, and we have an incredible guest. Hello and welcome to Nerdy V10s, the show where we talk anything and everything to do with the classic era of Formula One. Today we're joined by another very special guest. We are joined by Dickie Stanford, former uh, team manager for Williams Racing. Dickie, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for inviting me and uh, yeah, very good at the moment. Excellent. Uh, well, I'm going to do, uh, I do, as I do with all of our guests, I do a standard This Is Your Life moment, so I do apologise in advance for this. But uh, after a very successful lower formula career, you joined Williams in 1985 as the race mechanic to Nigel Mansell. In 1988, you then became a member of the test team where you stayed uh, till 89, and then you became the team's chief mechanic in 1990 before being promoted to team manager in 1995. Uh, you had 10 very successful years, which we're going to get into. Uh, but And then you uh, you spent some more time with the family after that, after a, good, after a long career. But you couldn't stay away for long. In 2010, you returned as, as the team manager for race day and testing. Uh, then you went to Williams Heritage. So in essence, you, you spent your, your career with, with Williams. Uh, you, 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 are, you live and breathe Williams uh, racing in, in its heyday. Uh, fantastic career. Yeah, it, um, there was never, never any reason to change. You know, even, even in, let's say, the bad times, um, it's the same same work all the way up and down the pit lane, just a different colour. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, after the, after that period, you then went to United Autosports, where you've been looking after Zach Brown's uh, McLaren CEO's personal collection, which we're going to get into as well. Um, my first question is a fairly obvious one as well. Uh, it's about working with Nigel Mansell. So 1985, you've joined the team, you're the chief mechanic. He's had two wins in the second place in that season uh, towards the end of the year. What was it like working with Nigel? And did you see any, any growth in him as that season went on? Or uh, what was, what was his, uh, his, uh, his attitude to racing when he first got his, his big break with, with Williams? Yeah, um, it, it was, uh, I watched Nigel grow up in 85. Um, 
you know, he, he was the underdog to start with, beginning of the year. He'd got a bit of a reputation at Lotus for breaking cars and not finishing races. Um, and he came to Williams with that reputation. And through the year, um, we developed the car quite a bit that year. And Nigel grew with it. Nigel did a lot of the um, testing with the car. And then we went to a test at Brands Hatch towards the end of the year. And we changed from rocker rear suspension to uh, pull rod rear suspension. And we found something like a second lap without doing anything else to the car. And then it was after that, the FW10 then suddenly took off and we started winning races. That's when Nigel won his first race at Brands Hatch. A second a lap? Yeah. Was, was just found by changing the suspension. That's, un that's uncommon. You wouldn't even imagine that today. That's inc no, you incredible. You can't even imagine something like that today, but but it was. We, we did nothing except change the rear suspension, put it back to similar settings, and then it was just like night and day. You know, suddenly the drivers were were so happy with the with the back end of the car. Amazing. I mean, just to follow up on that very quickly as well is where would you say? And it, I, it will be in the latter end of the year, I'm guessing. But where was Nigel's best performance in '85? Would you say across that year, or or or, or, or away from '85 as well across his his career with Williams? Where would you say you you saw him at his absolute best? I would say Kyle Almy when yep. we we had the one two. Um, Keki went off on some oil, I think, on about lap two or three. Um, but Nigel just drove a really good race. If, if you watch the whole race, um, he doesn't make a mistake. He, he gets locked up after Keki's gone off. You can see Nigel gets locked up as well. But he kept it on the track and kept going. Um, and the, like I say, the, the car had changed from so much from earlier in the year. Um, I, I think that was one of his best performers because South Africa was fairly hard, you know, to do a race for the drivers in those days. Brilliant. Oh, yeah, okay. Moving on from uh, yeah, one of his best moments to maybe one of his toughest. Uh, you were still the chief mechanic when his tyre blew in the 1986 finale, which obviously cost him the championship. It's become one of the most iconic moments in, in F1 history. But uh, But what did you say to him when he got back to the pits? There wasn't really a lot said. Um, we were all, to, to be honest, we were expecting to win the world championship. We had two cars versus um, Ed and, and Prost. And, you know, both of our two against one, you think, you know, one of them is going to take it. And we only had to cruise yeah. rank, I think, finish fourth. Um, and we thought we were doing it. We, we were well off the ball. Nigel was well off the pace, really. Um, just cruising around, just finishing. And we were sat there and getting closer and closer and thinking, yes, we've got this, you know, second year in Formula One, who's going to win a world championship. And then the tyre blew. And it just literally just crumbled in front of us. And then they, they called Narson in because they were worried about delamination with the tyres. And it just, you know, there, I can honestly say there wasn't a lot said in the garage after the race. Everybody was like devastated. I can imagine. So I was just totally stunned. I mean, yeah, like you say, it looked so improbable not to at least want them to win it. You know, in 86, we probably had the best car. Um, and so we went into the race really, really confident. Um, I think everybody, you know, um, it literally just crumbled away. You know, there wasn't a lot said after the race. It was literally pack it up and go home. 
was like couldn't couldn't get out of Australia in that time quick enough. Just wanted to go home and sort of like end the year. Yeah, I, I, I can imagine. I mean, did that make it more satisfying to the next year? Obviously, when okay, Nigel didn't get his redemption, but at least Nelson did, and the team won the championship. Yeah, yeah, because I, I think that was the highest scoring year. Uh, something like 149 points in the old-fashioned way of scoring things. Mm. Um, you know, yeah. we, we used to run, uh, the mechanics used to run stars in the in the side of the cockpit of the cars. Um, you got a gold for first, a silver for second, and nothing for third. Third didn't count. <laughs> <really. laughs> the car, you know, if, if, if you look at the results, the 11B was so quick, and it was really good on fuel as well in the turbo days. Um. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's probably my favourite car, the 11B. And we just happened to have one turn up here like, about two weeks ago. Zach, Zach's just uh, he bought one about seven years ago, and it's taken seven years to restore it to full running spec. Wow! <laughs> I bet that was a satisfying moment to um, start that yeah. engine up and. Well, it, it was the actual car I worked on. It was Nigel's uh, chassis for the beginning part of '87. The Silverstone winning car. Ooh. So I, I was actually working on the back end of that car in the day. <laughs> wow. I mean, uh, if we move on from 87 as well now to 88, which was a very different year, you were in the testing team that year when it became apparent that McLaren was just going to, well, it won what, it won 15 out of 16 races. There was only one race it didn't win. I was, what I was, was the goal? I was on the race team in 88. Oh, I went to the test team in 89. <laughs> ah, wrong year. Um, but that, but that, so so that year in in eighty eight with that McLaren, what was what were the team goals that year? Once it became apparent that 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 car was quick as quick as it was, because uh, what were your inter- what were your goals? And also, if you're on the race team, how did you feel about Schlesser effectively? Well, you took took taking out Senna in Italy. <laughs> uh, really, at the time, glad because we didn't want nobody wanted McLaren at the time to win every single race of that year because. The the McLaren, the 88 car was really good, but the engine um, was probably Honda's best V6 turbo engine. Um, yeah, I, I think we were heroes in Italy that year when Slesher took him out. Of course, it led to a Ferrari one too, didn't it? So they were they were delighted at that, at yeah. that result. But, I mean, it, 88, we, we, we'd just come off the high of... The 87 World Championship, and we went to the, we lost the the Honda engine, so we went to the Judd V8. It was our first uh, transverse gearbox, and we went active drive as well. So it was from a very high to a very low very quickly. And how did the team cope with 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 that transition and with with that? Just all the different aspects of the of the car that changed and. How 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 was the morale within the team, and how did it change as the season went on? And what was he actually going into eighty nine, knowing that uh, that that year had done, it was gone. And you could maybe you could try and start again. I, I think um, it was probably one of the hardest years I spent at Williams. There was just um, we we went active ride, and they we we built a chassis that wouldn't take front shock absorbers. So when the decision was made to change from active ride to normal suspension, they actually had to use the hydraulic struts, which are only probably 
six inches long um, as springs. They had to somehow work out how to get a spring inside of there. And then what they used, they used uh, a system called bell ray washers. And they, they cut washers and you put one that way, one that way, one that way, and one that way, and use the spring of the washer as a spring. And that's what we used from Silverstone onwards. They, they made that overnight at Williams. But yeah, it was it was hard work that year because the engine was unreliable. It had the power at top end, so the driver said, but it was unreliable. Um, and the, the active ride, um, we didn't really understand it. Um, if, you, if, you, if you go back and ask the people, the electronics we had were not good enough in 88 to actually work the system. Um, and the only thing we didn't really have a problem was, was with the gearbox, which we all thought would be the problem, being a, our first transverse gearbox. It, it turned out to be, don't worry about the gearbox, worry about everything else. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've seen, obviously, in the last 12 months, it's so hard with a, well, a regulation change. And it wasn't quite the same in, in terms of a sweeping regulation change for, every, for everyone necessarily back in the day. But uh, yeah, how Mercedes have just... If you just have to commit, and if you don't quite get it right, then it, it's damage limitation from there. Uh, but just go to go back quickly to uh, to Schlesser. I remember hearing at the time that he went and spoke to Ron Dennis and said, "Oh, you know, basically you're welcome because I've kept you striving for perfection." Is that true? Do you I, do you know? I, I know John Louis, and I, I don't think he'd have said that to Ron. Um, I haven't okay. actually heard that, but um, you know, a lot of people blaming. Um, and really, I was looking at it, it was Ayrton's fault. Slesher drew, you know, I think I think he goes to the right as they enter the uh, chicane, and he's got nowhere to go, so he's got to go round the chicane, and he's trying to stay out of the way of Ayrton, who's, who's being a lot quicker. Um, if Ayrton would have just waited, um, literally seconds, you know, just backed off a little bit, the accident would have, wouldn't have happened. But I just think, um, I, I, I don't blame John Louis. I, I, I know he was trying to get out of the way or trying, you know, to move one side, but he got himself into a point where it was either crash or try and take the corner. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and obviously, you know, we, we all know kind of Ayrton was maybe yeah. just <laughs> would have been thinking at that point, well, you know, I get out of my way, basically. He did that when he was competing with people, let alone lapping them. Um, but yeah, obviously Williams did bounce back uh, and you were there when they got to the point of being uh, the most dominant they ever were in, in the history of the team. So what are your memories, your favourite memories of working with Mansell the second time? Uh, Prost, Hill, Patrese, Coulsard, and of course Ayrton himself, albeit sadly briefly. Yeah, well, um, I'll, I'll never tell anybody my favourite driver. Because there's one question, so it's no need asking. We wouldn't ask, we wouldn't <laughs> ask. I've, I've worked, yes, I've been lucky enough to work with, let's say, a lot of the famous drivers. Um, but they've, they're all different. They're all different, you know. Um, it, it's like they call Alan the professor. Yes, he wanted to know a lot of things. But when Ayrton came, it was... He was telling us things that we'd never even thought of, like the track, the surface changes, um, and you have to keep to this side of the track. Uh, and um, I believe the engineer's workload went from sort of like an hour's debrief 
uh, with the driver to something like nearly two hours. The amount of information that he was giving and, and explaining why. Um, and Nigel, you know, a lot of people don't have a lot of time for Nigel, but he knew what he wanted. He'd get out of the car and he'd say, I'm going to change the springs, the dampers, um, I'm going to leave the roll bars. And so sure enough, you'd get back from the engineer a job list with exactly what he said. It, you know, um, there are some of the engineers that say Nigel, you know, didn't know how to engineer a car. Um, but I, I beg to differ. Um, he knew what the car was doing and what he needed to do to actually uh, get the best out of the car. He, he knew that he was going to give 100% wherever he was. Yeah, it's it's funny you see that now, I think, still in modern day where these kind of rumours build and, and then persist about certain drivers maybe not being as technical as others with no real basis. I remember when Lewis and Nico at Mercedes became the partnership and it was always, you know, Lewis had the raw speed and, and Nico was the, the real kind of engineering brain. And then once he left and that kind of narrative disappeared, everyone sort of started talking about how great Lewis is at setting up a car. Yeah, it's, uh, it, you know, if you go back, let's say, before computers, that's really when you start to see drivers and things. You know, when you, when you get into the, let's say, early 90s onwards, when computers are really, you know, helping the engineers set the car up and everything. Um, but if, if you go back before then, when you had people, let's say, like Mansell, Senna, Prost, when they had to explain to the engineers verbally what the car was doing um mm. I'd, I'd i'd like to take some of the more modern drivers back to the 80s to actually see what they would do yeah i've i've often thought something quite similar i'd love to see how drivers from today would interact in the 90s and the 80s with how the cars were set up and what what the cars actually need needed to to, to, to be driven I, I know i remember doing it was just an airfield test um, with the 11V, and we we hired Ross Cheever um, just to run this 11V up and down the runway. We said to him when he got in the car, this car will spin its wheels in, in six gear. And it was like, no, 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 you know, cars don't do that. And uh, he went off down the airfield and come back. Big grin from ear to ear, and he said, "You're right. It spins the wheels the moment you put the wheel, the the throttle to the floor. The Honda engine, the V6 turbo, it did. There was no traction control or anything. It was just your right foot." What is your all-time favourite classic F1 race, Boris? My all-time classic F1 race is Monaco. When we won Monaco, it's, I've been there so many times, never won, been on pole, been leading the race with different drivers. And when Montoya won, it was like a big monkey off my back. And, it's, and I don't remember anything about the race. I don't remember what went on during the race, only that Kimmy was pushing us all the way to the flag and we won. And it's strange because I can remember a lot of bad races, but I cannot remember what went down during the race at Monaco that we won, that was so important for me to win. Every year, Patrick Head used to come into the office and say, this is Monaco. You know, we never finish. We never win. We used to put so much pressure on. And I used to say, just treat it as another race. You know, if you go down, you start 
giving the boys a hard time about preparation or that, they're going to change what they do. Um, and uh, yeah, when we eventually won, I don't remember the race. <laughs> I remember everybody saying, you got to go down and pick the, the trophy up. And I thought, no, he's always been pushing me to win this race. And I tricked Patrick Head because he said he wasn't going to go down to the podium. I tricked him. I said, we've got a problem with the car. We need to get we need to get you down there because the steward's got something with the car. So we ran down the pit lane. The guys opened up. And I just pushed him through and he had no choice. And I walked off the other way then. <laughs> <laughs> I bet he, how, what was his reaction to that? He did say thank you. He did come back later that evening and say thank you. But uh, yeah, yeah, because I, I still, still have the honour of being the last Williams person to actually hold the trophy up in the air from Barcelona 2012. It's, oh, yeah. It's, it's a pity more anything else. Yeah. Very special. Thank you. We'll move away from um, from from your time at Williams now. We'll move on to to United Autosports, where you where you where you now work and you maintain uh, Zach Brown's personal F1 collection. Can you give us a bit of an insight into the day to day of what of what that involves and uh, all the different technical aspects you have to, to keep these cars maintained? Because obviously, I'm assuming it's a lot more than just a quick polish. Yes. Um, yeah. No. Because Zach drives all the cars. Um, you know, they are stripped down quite regularly, and and he wants some. Um, the detail of the cars to be period, so um, it's it's qu- quite busy uh, keeping the cars back to their the, let's say their period spec. Um, I'm quite lucky because he's got a couple of Williamses here, and I can remember them, so I know <laughs> when the wiring's in the wrong place or something like that. Um, and then it's you know, you know the. We've just, or I say we, Zach has acquired a Schumacher Ferrari, which is at um, Friarano at the moment, um, having the engine looked at. So this is going to be interesting when this turns up. Uh, but yeah, uh, they are not just mothballed. They, they're used. And so it's like any form, modern day Formula One car. When they're used, there's, we strip them right back to a chassis and then rebuild them ready for the next next time they're out. Um, you know, the, I, I know the Williams for next year, the 707, uh, has got three races to do next year. You know, so and they're they're all in America, so it's it's like a full strip down, take all the stuff with us and go. Yeah, it's great having a, a team principal who's so clearly. A genuine car nut. I mean, obviously, you have to be to to be involved in F1. But seeing someone who's so passionate about the history and and those cars, uh, what what other cars are there? What are your, your favourites um, in the collection? Um, they're all special cars. You know, it starts off with the with the with the Wolf, the '77 Jody Schecter Wolf, then the Lotus '79, which is the only chassis that both Mario and Ronnie want to race in. Um, then the Jones winning FW07, the Mansell 11B, and then the Senna MP4-6, then the Schumacher Ferrari, then the Hakenham McLaren, and then the Hamilton McLaren. And it's great because you go from... It's the greatest hits, basically. Because you go from 77, but there's just put the battery on the car, put some fuel in it and fire it up. And then you go to the Hamilton McLaren, which is about seven or eight people, Mercedes included, yeah. to actually get the thing fired up. 
it's a computer with wheels. Exactly. You know, it's such a spread of different cars. It makes it really interesting. And then you have the IndyCar collection. You know, we've we've got uh, 84 March, Bobby Rahal, uh, Mario Andretti, 87 Lola, the Emerson Fittipaldi PC18, then the um, uh, Nigel Mansell, it hasn't turned up yet, it's coming, uh, Lola T900 championship winning car, then the Michael Andretti T9001, then the Rick Mears PC20, and then the Dan- Danny Sullivan Galba. And if they haven't won a race or a championship, they don't come into the workshop. So there's there's something special about each and every car. You know, we're, we're due to have a shakedown of the Indy cars early next year. Um, the weather's just been too bad to do it. So we'll have a shakedown of about four cars. Probably just go to an airfield and just shake them down just to make just to prove that they run and everything's okay with them. Then we'll mothball them for another another year and then get them out and do the same again. I mean, it must be quite special to walk down that hall and see all these see all these cars and see all the history. It is, just, you know, because you know, it's it's not just, let's say, Zach that we do here. We do other customers as well. And besides the IndyCar line and the F1 line, the Group C cars are upstairs, the Dale Earnhardt cars, you know, Porsche 962, Porsche 935. There's just so many different cars. You know, there's we have about 30 cars that United look after. So, you know, Zach, Zach is one of the, the main customer, I'll say, but he's only one of the customers we look after. I mean, I mean, I'm, you sound, it sounds like Zach drives all the cars. I mean, how often does he, does he, do, does he drive them? Does he, does he like do like a private test day he likes to go out to when you guys join um, him? Or what does he tend probably, to do? We'll probably do about three or four private test sessions in the UK. Snetterton, Donington, somewhere like that. And then... Uh, this next coming year so far, we've got Mugello with a Jaguar, uh, XJ, XJR10, uh, the IMSA version, the um, Capri, the Cologne Capri, and this is chassis one. You know, there's something special, about, like I say, about each of these cars. Um, so that's doing Portugal and Spa. And there's there's another other oh, the Porsche nine three five is doing both of those as well, and then the Williams is doing um, Long Beach, and then Laguna Seca and then Sonoma, um, and if we can we'll try and fit we're just rebuilding the Hakkinen car at the moment um, we'll try and fit that into a test session somewhere, so we we can be quite busy for you know for um, what we're doing. Like I say, because it's just a variety of cars that make it so interesting. Yeah, I mean, the Williams around Laguna Seca, I'd love to see it going through the corkscrew. I, that sounds amazing. Uh, an 80s F1 car going, yeah. Uh, but I mean, here you are, all these years later, still as a mechanic, still clearly with such a love for it. Uh, what would you say to any younger listeners who want to become mechanics? Uh, where's the best place to, to get started if they wanted to try and emulate a, a career similar to yours? Um, a lot of people nowadays are going through these colleges, you know, at Silverstone College, and um, I know one of the Oxford colleges do a mechanics course for motor racing. 
um, myself personally, um, I just happened to find somebody that did a form with Ford and asked them if I could, you know, give them a hand polish it and that in the evenings. Um, I've, I've never taken a mechanics course in my life. Um, I was lucky enough, like I say, I found a guy that who taught me everything. Um, but it, it was, I'm not sure if you can do it nowadays because I was literally arriving home from work and then going off until midnight working on Formula Fords and everything free of charge for a few years. But yeah, um, I I personally now would say go go through a college. You, you're going to, if you can, you're going to find work easier. Um, you know, we, we, we know when we're looking for people, the first thing is, where did they start? What have they done? So um, and it's, it's very difficult to do, let's say, the way I came up through it. Uh, yeah, I, I would say really go to, go, to, go to a good college. There's lots of courses out there. I'd recommend them. Well, thank you for thank you for uh, very much. It's uh, it's time for our final question now, and it's a question we ask every guest. Um, we have something called our motorsport time machine, and it's uh, if you could go to any point in motorsport history and do anything you like, what would you do, and why would you, and why would you do it? It doesn't have to be F one; it can be any motorsport. F one obviously is preferred if you want to, but um, what would you do? I'd like to go and see nine one sevens at Le Mans. Le Mans is something I've never done, and they were monsters. And it's something I'd, I'd like to stand down, let's say, the Mulsanne straight without the chicanes and watch one of these cars go by, sort of like 240 miles an hour. It's it's something I, I can only watch on YouTube. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, if I could go back in time, I would, would go to Le Mans. I've never been there. Um, I wouldn't want to go and work there, but I'd like to go there as just to see. It's it's something. Or Indianapolis. Um, but once again, I'd like to go back in time, not for the modern cars, for probably somewhere around the mid-90s, yeah, early 90s. Those two races would be the, the two things I'd like to go and see, but definitely Le Mans with the Porsche 917s. And then somewhere around the 90s with the uh, Indy cars. So you don't fancy driving them? Not really. I, I learned at a very young age that I thought I was quick. I, I had a few tests in a Formula Ford. I went to Snetterton and I thought I was quick in this Formula Ford. And then a Jaguar Mark II passed me like I was standing still. And I realised very quickly I'm not as quick as I <laughs> <laughs> uh, Well... Dickie, thank you so much. Uh, uh, and to quote Murray Walker again, as I do at the end of every show, unless I'm much mistaken, I am much mistaken. It is, it is indeed the end of the program. Uh, thank you very much for for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Dickie, uh, and hearing you, hearing your stories, the history. Uh, and I am, I, I cannot tell you how jealous I am personally of the test you're going to have with that Hacken and McLaren, the MP4 16A. It is one of my all-time favourite cars. I, I love that thing. So um, I might well be contacting Scarlett with some footage of that because it's, it's going to be awesome uh, uh, James thank you very much for joining me as well it's been a pleasure to have you on board as ever thank you you're welcome thanks for having me well that's it uh, we'll, uh, we'll be in touch soon with, with a new guest until next time goodbye you're listening to the Cut to the Race podcast 
It's lights out, and away we go! Sports Social Podcast Network.